Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Music podcast. In this episode, I speak with Andrew Shulman, classical performer, medical musician, and author of Waking the Spirit, A Musician's Journey, Healing Body, Mind, and Soul. Our conversation explores how Shulman found himself in a surgical intensive care unit and how he started playing there to give back to the medical staff that saved him and to give back to others. We discuss the role of music in healing, the specific aspects of music that promote healing and recovery, and how playing in the ICU improved his musical skills. Both reading the book and hearing Shulman talk about his experience in the ICU is inspiring and moving. Hello, Richard. Hello. Well, your book is, is a wonderful book, Andrew. And um, But before we kind of talk about the book, you, you were a professional musician, or you are a professional musician in New York City. And um, I guess before we kind of learn about what happens in the book, can you tell... Uh, us a little bit about um, what kind of music you were performing before 2009. Sure. I'm a professional musician since 1975 when I graduated from Stony Brook University. And I had a BA from music from Stony Brook and actually was uh, have trying to decide whether to go on to graduate school, I was accepted into the music program at Sarah Lawrence University, or whether to become a freelance musician and move into Manhattan. And uh, just a brief little, I think, uh, interesting anecdote in how that worked. I wasn't sure at all, and the people at Sarah Lawrence invited me out there for an afternoon at the end of May before school let out to spend a couple of hours observing their ensembles and some classes being taught. And um, right before I went into the school, as I got out of my car, I looked up to the heavens and said, uh, the Lord, please give me a sign if I should go to school at uh, graduate school or move into the city. And when I got back to the car after this couple of hours, I was still undecided. And then as I got into the car, my head felt like it had been slammed by a sledgehammer. I realized uh, I had a migraine headache, the first and only migraine headache of my life. And I looked up to the heavens again and said, Lord, I think you want me to move to Manhattan and become a freelance musician. And that's how I made that decision. And um, I was uh, the first classical guitar major at Stony Brook University. My teacher there was Jerry Willard. And, and so I put my nylon string guitar in a guitar case and moved into the city. It was a wonderful experience being a young person and going into that environment. And this is 1975, which is a different uh, century and a completely different world. This is pre-iPod, pre a lot of digital everything, pre, uh, I think, even really personal computers. So there was a lot of places where you could play music and get paid for it, restaurants, hotels, uh, and then starting to get yourself into the concert circuit, et cetera. And uh, within uh, 
the end of my first year of playing Little Places in Greenwich Village, I landed the best um, working musician's job in New York. It was playing at Windows on the World on the 107th floor of the World Trade Center. And um, that kind of music, playing background music, was uh, a very central part of my career for decades. And I'm very glad that I did it because, especially in a city like New York, in the great places I played, the Palm Court at the Plaza Hotel and um, the Mark Hotel, and just really great stuff. And at the same time, it allowed me to make money, pay my rent, work full-time as a musician, and start developing my skills as a concert musician. So by the time you get into the 80s, I'm starting to do tours as a solo classical guitarist. And in the early 90s, I formed a string quintet called the Abaca String Band, A-B-A-C-A. And um, right from the beginning, that was a quintet. And uh, within a year, it had the instrumentation it still has today, eight-string guitar, mandolin, violin, viola, and double bass. And when people ask uh, what's our repertoire, um, I always say we begin with Vivaldi and we end with Pinball Wizard, <laughs> which is true. Uh, Pen Pinball Wizard has been our encore for like 15 years. And you might not think with that instrumentation on an acoustic group it would work, but it works like a charm. I mean, that's why we, you know, we just kind of have to play that or Besame Mucho. But the repertoire is Vivaldi and Mozart and Bach and Gershwin and Duke Ellington and uh, a, a big range because that's the range I've always liked myself. Um, uh, we don't actually play Beatles music, which I just haven't gotten around to arranging that for the group yet. But Bach and the Beatles, music that I played starting when I learned to play the guitar at eight, actually that was folk music. Nine is when I began playing Bach and 11. I was 11 years old when the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan show for the first time in February uh uh, 1964 and Bach and Beatles especially very strong for me and that's always been uh, a, a very important part of the music I love and part of my repertoire so again all these years up to 2009 when I had my life really changed with the surgery that I had I was a working musician uh, in the fields I described where playing sort of anonymously as a background musician, but again, I stress I loved doing that work, and in part, it's because of the venues that I was in. And then I was also always in the concert field and uh, made a number of recordings for the Centaur label. So uh, always a busy musician up to that point in July. Well, then now is the time I think to just maybe briefly describe what happened um, to you and and how that really changed the course of your career. Sure. Uh, now, briefly for me is usually about 45 minutes, but I, I, I think that you might be thinking a little shorter than that. So I'll, I'll do that. Um, at the very end of June 2009, I had a CT scan, which was a follow-up to concerns about my pancreas that had started uh, almost a year before. Um, and this scan showed something that hadn't been there in the earlier ones. The earlier ones had two cysts that uh, they weren't alarmed about, but uh, were a little concerned. They just wanted to follow it. The, this scan at the end of June showed a mass in the tail of the pancreas that four doctors looked at and said was pancreas cancer. 
pancreatic cancer. Um, I had a surgery, and I'm not going to tell you too much because my book really describes everything here. But um, uh, there was a surgery, and there was some very good news and um, some very bad news. And the bad news happened uh, on my way to the surgical intensive care unit. I went into shock, and within a couple of minutes of arriving in the surgical ICU, I was clinically dead. Um, And in uh, uh, a great hospital such as Beth Israel, with a great team in the surgical ICU, we call it the SICU, so I'll say that I'll use that term from now on. Great team, and they actually saved me. Uh, And then I'm in a medically induced coma for a week, and all I'll tell you is that in the middle of that coma, when medicine had gone as far as it could go, and my wife's voice had gone as far as it could go, music then uh, saved me again. Uh, in the middle of the coma, there was uh, a few hours where it absolutely looked like I was gone. And my wife had uh, an epiphany that only music could reach me, and she was right. The attending physician allowed it, and it saved my life. Uh, and I hope people are very, very interested to find out the details of that. And let me just say, read the book. <laughs> and it's a great book. I mean, I, it, it really is. Eventually, you have uh, you come to a decision. Or I don't even know if it's even a decision, but you decide like you have to go back to yes. you and and play music. And one, I was actually surprised that the people let you do that. So I guess I'm a little interested in sort of um, how you came to that decision that you wanted to do that and how you persuaded them to let you come back. Sure. Uh, First, thank you so much for what you just said about the book, too. I really appreciate that very much. Um, uh, When you're in a coma, you don't know you're in a coma. (laughs) That's number one. Number two, I will tell you, um, and this is an important thing, actually. It's slightly off topic, but an important thing to say is when you're in a coma, except for when you may be in very deep sleep, which you're not in all the time, uh, you hear everything. And it is translated, though, there's a term called coma dreams, which are not actually dreams. It's a dreamlike state. So um, I have this experience of being really full seven days, actually, of being in the coma, coming out on the seventh day when they started bringing me out. And um, so that when my wife comes to into my bedside on the early in the morning of the eighth day, I had no idea <laughs> that I was in a coma. I thought that the surgery had been the day before. And I thought the diagnosis that I had, which was a very deadly one, was the deal. And I had been very resigned to that, I will say, that I found peace with myself about that. And then my wife tells me this amazing news that what actually had really gone about, and I'll just say the first thing she says is, your surgery wasn't yesterday, it was eight days ago. That's the opening. And she talks to me for uh, not more than 30 seconds and reveals to me some amazing stuff. And the first response to that that I'm hit with is that uh, it's the 
understanding of what the true meaning of the word awesome is. We use that word all the time. Awesome. Everybody says awesome. It means great. You know, that's really cool. That's great. But the origin of awesome goes into very deep wonder. And it's wonder about the unknowable and the mystery of life. And I mean that uh, very seriously. Um, Anybody who's been through this knows what I mean. And so in the understanding how my life had been saved, to the degree that which I had been lucky, there were two things that the two, which will answer your question, which is that, of course, I understood that a payback had to happen, that you can't get that much uh, of, a, of an unbelievable gift, the greatest gift, which is a second chance at life. You can't receive that without giving back. And the other thing is, as uh, I described in my book, my father had an amazing experience of um, his life basically being saved, not in the same way as mine, but es- essentially music saved his life in World War II from what was highly likely being killed or, or, or wounded, a high, high percentage of that. And I always believed that my father had a certain kind of survivor's guilt because he never had a way to give back. And I was very aware of these two things I just described instantly. So within one minute of my wife telling me what had happened, I made the decision that I had to go back to that surgical ICU. Now, the fact that they let me do it, how that happened is that the director of the SICU at that time was Dr. Marvin McMillan. And by the way, uh, he is and I are very, very close. We are very close friends and we're very close colleagues now. And he wrote the afterword to my book, which I love. I just love that afterword. And he's a music guy. And so when I told him when I was leaving the hospital that I wanted to return there, there's a a very funny thing that it's a wonderful little thing that if you were very, very, very sick and you're okay and you're leaving a hospital, doctors and nurses often use this line. It's very common. They'll say, we are so happy that you're doing so much better. And we never want to see you again. <laughs> and uh, when Marvin said that to me, I looked at him and I, he, he agrees. I was fierce. <laughs> I said to him, but I do want you to see me again. I want you to see me back here with my guitar. And he looked at me for a second and all he said was go home, get better and call me. And it took a few months, but I did call him. And he was willing to try it. Now, the hospital, uh, Beth Israel Medical Center, which is now, for the last two years, is now called Mount Sinai Beth Israel, has a very famous music therapy department, the uh, the, the uh, Lewis and Lucille Armstrong Music Therapy Department. And the director is a woman, Dr. Joanne Lowy, that is internationally known in the field of music therapy. And McMillan said, I would have to speak to her. She would have to give the okay. And she did something really remarkable, which is after meeting with me, and I played a little bit for her, it happened to be when she walked into the meeting, I had my, happened to have my guitar out and played her ultimate favorite solo piece, which was a Bach prelude, the first prelude from the, the prelude from the first cello suite, which a lot of guitarists play. And she was willing to take a chance. So she said yes. And in those first few months, Dr. Lowy, McMillan, everybody, I was watched uh, like a hawk. Everybody watched me like a hawk. But it, it, I think even it could have even been the end of the first month, certainly by the end of the second month, people 
saw that my life experience at that point, at that time, 35 years as a professional musician, the classical guitarist, uh, classical guitar is an ideal instrument for doing this. Uh, and I had some experience playing in hospices and nursing homes before that professionally. There's an organization called Hospital Audiences in New York that I worked for for a number of years. And I just uh, had the background experience, too, of being one of the sickest patients that ever survived in that room. So uh, everybody concluded that uh, I was really good at doing this. And uh, if I, you know, I don't mean to say that with an ego thing, but I was a natural for doing this. And uh, I very quickly actually became part of the medical team in the surgical ICU. I'll add here that I'm not a music therapist. What I do is not music therapy. And I have developed a specialty, which I call medical musician. I never worked with the music therapy department because it's a different approach. The people I worked with were the doctors and nurses in the surgical ICU. And it's seven years now of doing this. Uh, one other thing I'll just add is that in terms of developing this approach, what I call medical musician, it still took three years of on-the-job training where I would, every single time I was in there, three days a week, two hours a session, 90 minutes to two hours, I had lots of questions that I had to ask. And it took a long time to really get to the point where I felt comfortable that I knew what I was doing. But eventually that happened. Uh, and I was very lucky that that SICU that I went back to, of course, was the place where they had saved my life. So when doctors and nurses have saved your life and you return, you're kind of like their kid. You know, you can ask anything. They're, they're just, you're like the kid, even though I was older than probably all of them. What were some of the sort of the actual medical outcomes that you could achieve, in a sense, through your guitar playing? Okay. Um, I, it's not too much of a spoiler. It's the first story in the book in the prologue. And it was the first experience I had. It was uh, five months in. Before that, I wasn't really going to bedsides much. I was just sitting near the nurse station putting soothing and healing music in the air. And we'll come back a little later what I mean by soothing and healing music. But there was an experience uh, where I came in one day and I heard this very strange voice over all the noise that's in a modern uh, intensive care unit, the machines beeping, all the vo different voices. It was a woman's voice. I thought she was Russian. And um, I went to that bedside and in, uh, in a nutshell, what it was is a case of a patient who had brain surgery the day before and not too uncommon a side effect of that is for a day or so, they have misfiring nerve synapses. And um, it, 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 they can often have to be strapped down, as she did. She was a happy uh, misfiring synapse person. Though sometimes people can be a little violent and all kinds of things can happen. She was very happy, a woman in her 70s. I was pretty sure she was Russian because I'd been to Russia on a concert two years before, and it sounded like Russian to me, even though it was all kind of garbled. And I uh, walked in, and several nurses were really frantic because it was a very difficult case. And she had tied down three nurses at that bedside for over two hours, 
was really a mess, actually. And um, the means at their disposal of dealing with medication, et cetera, nothing was working. And uh, I walked in. They saw me. One of the nurses said, a guy named Richard Spadafora goes, get your guitar pronto. Get over here pronto. We need you. And I, instinctively, I picked up my folder of Bach music and got the guitar out, went right there, uh, settled down, took a look at the situation. The nurses were exhausted. The woman was uh, was actually, she was happy in a certain way, but she was crazy, you know, because of this medical condition and talking very, very loud, very, very fast. And I realized she was actually not talking to the nurses. She was talking to people. She was only, she could see she was hallucinating. I took the guitar. I had the guitar out. I opened up, actually it was that Bach prelude that first, that's a great, great prelude from the first cello suite. I looked at a clock because I was curious if this was going to help, how long would it take? And I can tell you that, it took 10 seconds to make a dramatic difference. As soon as I started playing the piece and the nature of this particular piece, uh, how it is a very rhythmic pattern that's very flowing and grabs the attention and that the lyricism of the melody and the middle voices and the bass are such that it's transfixing in a way. And that's what happened. She focused, she settled, and at the 10-second mark, Richard Spadafora, that nurse, gives me a thumbs up, just said something like, thank God. And within a minute, he could leave. Within two minutes or three minutes, the other two nurses could leave. This woman was looking at my fingers, at the guitar, listening, focused. And I have had this experience in post-brain surgery a fair number of times of just getting the brain balance that way and focusing the patient. That's one example. Another example, which is generally most of the time easy to do, but not always, is blood pressure. Um, if you know your blood pressure numbers, and by the way, uh, in a SICU, they only are interested in the first number. This is, is it systolic? I forget. It, you know, we think of 120 over 80. They're just interested in the 120 because that has to do with the heartbeat more directly with the heartbeat and, and the muscle of the heart. And if you have uh, a blood pressure over, I think, 140, it's very concerning. In an ICU, it's not really concerning till it passes 160, because it's a stressful environment anyway, and they filter that in. But I can't tell you how many times I have played for patients 160 through about 180, sometimes even higher. 180 starts getting very dangerous. And the right music, if that person is open to it, and they could be awake or not awake, they could be sedated, but the right music, um, the right sound, not any music can do it. It's, it's, and we'll talk more about the right music a little later, but... Um, I have so many times, and it usually takes about 20 minutes. 20 minutes is a solid number that I see coming up a lot. And when nurses and doctors see 165 and 20 minutes later, they see 125. They really like you a lot <laughs> because you're helping them. You're, if you help their patients, you're helping them. So there's blood pressure. Uh, I'll give you one more instance 
Um, by the way, I, I know it's like pulling teeth for you to get me to answer these questions. So I, I hope you don't mind if I uh, struggle with this. The I hear that laughing. Um, the uh, other great example with music is in pain and how music can reduce the need for analgesics and actually lower pain. And it, that gets more complicated in terms of how that works. I have two chapters in the book. The first is an anecdotal story about a patient in ICU delirium, which you go into ICU delirium primarily because of being in a great level of pain. And the follow-up chapter, I have several experts. I have a psychiatrist and uh, I have the head of pain management at Beth Israel, Dr. Ron of Kaplan, Dr. Stephen Quenzel was the psychiatrist at the beginning of the chapter, where we discussed this. And um, I, I, I can't do a short answer on how music works other than to say anybody who knows about the gate control theory of pain will understand how uh, music fills up the dorsal horn of the spine and then reduces the level of pain. If you're not familiar with that, just Google uh, the gate control theory of pain. It's quite fascinating and uh, so interesting in so many ways. One of the things that I was really excited to talk with you about is um, what you called, and I'll put in air quotes, the right kind of music. And yeah. um, I'm somebody who grew up sort of in the, listening to a lot of music in the 80s and the 90s, so I'm a big fan of punk and hip-hop and lots of sort of genres which um, – are not you don't really talk about them in your book, and so I was thinking, you know, if you came, you know, to me and played Bach or even the Beatles, some of the mellow Beatles you talk about while I'm yeah. awake and feeling good, you might get an angry comment from me. Um, so can you maybe talk a little bit about sort of why you think Bach and the Beatles, among other songs, have been are so so effective, and then start there. Okay, uh, I'll preface that simply by saying that. Generally speaking, the best music for somebody is the music they like the most. And because it's the year that we're in, and because most of the patients in a surgical intensive care unit are, most of them are 60 and over. So if I played Beatles, Gershwin, and Bach, is a, it does have a lot to do with what you listen to when you're younger. However, I have found that uh, Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> really takes care of a good 30 or 40 years <laughs> of the last 30 or 40 years. So I have a few tools there and I improvise. So I can improvise um, sounds and uh, rhythms and a, a vibe and a feel if I need to. However, here's the interesting thing. If you were in a surgical intensive care unit, it would mean that you had major surgery and um, you were in uh, not feeling great, you know, because of that very reason. And you probably have some kind of illness or something also that's an added factor to that. I doubt, uh, and I mean this sincerely, that if I played for you under those circumstances, and as long as you liked the sound that you were hearing from me, you wouldn't get angry because you wouldn't have enough energy to get angry. Uh, and, I, and it's a little funny, but it's actually true. You wouldn't have enough energy. In fact, very few – the best music you would play for people is their favorite music, but very few people – 
in a SICU, very few patients actually have the energy even to want to say what their favorite is or to make a request. Uh, you find that out. I found that out very, very early on. And um, so uh, now I kind of, I will say this is a, not really a spoiler. I found after a few years, because I had to bring sheet music all the time, even though I was a professional musician and had had a huge amount of memorized music. Uh, let's say a little teaser is that something happened after my um, cardiac arrest and coma that I, I, I had for a while, a good long while, the inability to play from memory. Let's just leave it at that. The silver lining in that was that I brought a big black bag of sheet music every day, several different folders, and I brought all kinds of music. Um, and then so... The I got to try lots and lots of things. And one of the things that I noticed that no matter what the demographic, certain things really, really work. And, and here's a perfect example. There is a song by Schubert, originally voice and piano, that in his day was arranged for solo guitar, and I've done my own arrangement of it. Uh, this In German, the title is Stenchen, and it means serenade. And it's very famous. Da-da-da-dum, da-dee-da-dum-dum. Uh, very commonly known. By the way, now you know why I don't sing. Um, and so one day I started playing it, and the demographic, this is lower Manhattan. We have from the poorest to the richest. We have every race, every religion, every culture in there from all over the world. And I started playing that tune thinking, well, I don't know how wide a demographic it'll have that'll it'll work. And I was amazed it worked everywhere for every demographic I just described. And I started thinking, why is that so? And I talk about it again in the book a little bit, and not to go into too much detail here, but uh, Vienna at the in the early uh, 19th century was a crossroads of the world for East and West. And there are aspects of that melody that touch on Eastern music as well as Western music, and there are aspects of the harmonies that are actually very modern. The introduction of it could have been the introduction to a modern pop ballad. And um, there is also digging deeper in to why things work. Uh, the fact that, first of all, it's very lyrical. And even if people didn't know the words to this, which most people wouldn't know, by far, 99% plus would not know the lyrics. It's still what I call lyrical, meaning very melodic. And the kind of thing, if you are awake or barely awake or in a coma where you're hearing everything, uh, it's the kind of thing that could get you to be making music in your own head. And singing and language and music have, uh, it, those things activate large a large, large, large part of the brain, getting your brain to work and everything. And also, uh, well, let me again stick into why what music works. In the same regard, we talk about the Beatles music. The Beatles actually is really already classical music. I mean, their first stuff is 60 years ago. Classical just means it continues through the generations. I had restaurant gigs where I play Strawberry Fields Forever. No, I, I was once playing a 
a, a Beatles song. I don't remember what it was, but a, a five-year-old walked up and said, Strawberry Fields Forever. He was making a request. Um, so uh, also I mentioned Gershwin. So some of the common denominators are that structurally speaking, any musicians listening to this know exactly what I mean. Structurally speaking, this is really great music, and it's also very inventive music. Uh, there is something called the Bach inventions, two and three part inventions. Inventiveness is one of the biggest compliments a musician will give to a piece of music. The worst thing you could say is it's derivative. Derivative is basically boring. Inventive really captivates you. It pulls you forward because you're, you want to know what you, where it's going, what is going to happen next. So in these three main bodies of work where I talk about Bach, uh, and his music, especially the music that saved me, was the vocal work. And his other work is always singing, if you know how to make it sing. And the Beatles music, Gershwin music, the Schubert. And I mentioned Bohemian Rhapsody, which has an incredible draw over uh, demographics. It's music that uh, activates the imagination, activates the, the brain in very, very important ways, and by activating the brain, what I'm also saying is that the good chemicals you want to have created in your brain, serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, which I always mispronounce. I'm sure I mispronounced it just now. Um, you know, all of these things, the dopamine kind of chemicals, get created in much greater quantities in the brain. They travel through your body, through the nervous system, and they bring good messages. They bring messages that it's in a very subtle way. It gives hope. Um, one of the messages, and as one expert explained it to me, of why the music saved me in my coma is the message upon hearing this very, very incredible, great music my wife played for me. The message that was sent throughout my body was, it's not time to shut down yet. Well, that's really, really powerful. And by the way, the last chapter of the book begins with a story where I got to play for somebody and uh, and do that with music by the Rolling Stones. For I did that for a patient, and I only use that particular story in the book because that patient was at door, death's door in a coma, and there were doctors, nurses, and family members and friends all there in that in that hour when that happened with the music. So uh, I have. Um, people who can um, witness uh, to it and give witness to it and attest to it, that it was the music at that point for that person that made the difference. Uh, it's also, I guess, uh, this is the point where it's very important to say, it's not a panacea. It's not going to work for everybody. Somebody can be in a coma and dying and nothing is going to save them. But even in that situation, if it's the right kind of music, um, it, it, music is a blessing at the end. I have played for people who were in their last moments who were dying and they can't, uh, again, this is serious stuff and it could sound a little like I'm being lighthearted about it, but I'm not. They can't tell you that it made a difference and we don't know a test. We don't have a testimony for them, but it does seem it does seem in many ways, and if family is there, it certainly also makes a great difference for the family, if the family wants it, and if you know that this is a patient that wants music. One of the important things a medical musician has to know is when not to go to a bedside. 
when people don't want it, uh, which doesn't happen too often, but it does happen. That's very important. Next question, Richard. <laughs> well, I, I guess I, I want to go just a little bit deeper in the music that you you play and, and that you identified. To me, I know uh, Alex Ross in, in his books about the 20th century says the 20th century is about sort of the increase of percussion in classical music and sort of, I don't want to say the decrease of melody, but the, the, the rise of sort of not as much melody. And so as I was hearing you talk about the various musics that you're interested in, they seem like very melodic kind of pieces. Do you think that plays a, a, a key that some, there's something very healing about melody as opposed to maybe other aspects of music? Uh, yes. So let's uh, quickly, uh, I want to also say with you, Alex Ross's book, uh, The Rest is Noise. Yeah. Is a fantastic book, fantastic yeah. book. Um, and uh, I recommend it to everybody who's interested in music. You have to take into account here that it's a surgical intensive care or a critical care unit. I also, I'm the, officially the medical musician at Berkshire Medical Center once one week a month, uh, Berkshire Medical Center in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And that's a, it's called a CCU, critical care unit, which is a mix of surgical and medical ICU patients. And so it, it's kind of like uh, the guiding um, words are soothing and healing. So, uh, percussion and drums is generally speaking, and there can be exceptions in percussion, by the way, but generally speaking, if you think of percussion, that's not a soothing healing sound. It's an invigorating sound. When you think about timbre, and, uh, which is very, very important, timbre is the quality of the sound. A warm, intimate sound clearly falls into soothing and healing. Um, and um, uh, melody, uh, I, I think, is very, very important because one of the things I'm really trying to do is enable that person inside themselves to sing. It's like if you hear something beautiful and you hum along, it's, and the reason for doing that is the more you engage the patient and the more you stimulate the patient's brain, the different parts of the brain start communicating with each other. And that's very important. There's a chapter in the book where the expert in my book is Dr. Cameron Fallapur, who is the founder and director of the Brain Resource Center in New York City. He, he talks about that. And in, in the book, as you know, I mean, it's written for the layman. So uh, it's um, uh, these are, are very, very important things. The term medical musician, when I came up with it, I didn't even uh, know yet uh, until it was a little bit later that I was starting to do some history uh, exploration of music and medicine and found out that Pythagoras, the great Pythagoras and his theorem, who was a mathematician and a philosopher, who's also a musician, who's probably one of the finest musicians in Greece uh, of his time in the 6th century BC. And his instrument was the kithara, also pronounced kithara, K-I-T-H-A-R-A, which is a little bit, has some similarities to a guitar. In fact, the modern word for guitar in Greece is kithara. It's a, it's a lyre, the Greek lyre, L-Y-R-E, and uh, similarities to harp and guitar. Google it, it's very interesting stuff. There's a guy who has videos on YouTube called Peter Pringle, and he's terrific, <laughs> and you can really hear why Pythagoras thought that the stringed instruments in general and the cathar was the 
uh, best uh, music healing instrument. I have to say that he, uh, okay, all the flute players in the world are going to hate me right now. Um, Pythagoras didn't uh, want, um, he didn't want um, flutes used and he did not want percussion used. So all your percussion is sorry. A flute can be a wonder. I happen to know I've heard flute players doing this. I used to work with flute a lot. I, I will say that partly it's the quality of the the type of instrument is part of what makes the right sound. But the single most important thing is the sensitivity of the player. I once had a conversation with Dr. Connie Tomeno, who's in the book uh, in a very important ways. Uh, she is a music therapist and the director of the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function. And um, we were talking about this once, and, you know, she just said, look, ultimately it boils down to the sensitivity of the player. People joke with me sometimes, and they say, well, you wouldn't bring a tuba into a SICU, but they're one of the greatest tuba players of all time, Howard Johnson, who I had the great pleasure of being on the same stage with uh, years ago in in an event, actually, that's in the book. I don't want to say what it is. Um, if Howard Johnson sat next to the bedside of a critically ill patient, he would do wonders because he's a brilliant musician and uh, he would know how to do it. So when talking about the right music, I'll bring this more into focus for you and say that in critical care, it is very, very important that the level of playing has to be very high level. And Dr. McMillan actually made a very good point about that. Over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years or something, especially since recordings have been out and television and everything, most people hear most of the music they hear from professionally recorded music. And it's edited music, usually, if there are no mistakes, it's beautifully recorded, so on and so forth. And that's what people are used to. He said 50, 60, 100 years ago, Most people heard the music they heard from amateur musicians because they heard it in their homes because they played the guitar and and mom played the piano and and Uncle Joe played the banjo. And it was different then in that regard. But I would say that today the playing level has to be very high, whether it is a medical musician or a music therapist or whoever is going in there, because if it's not, it is agitating. And this I know for sure, I've had conversations with doctors and nurses that when they have the experience of having people who mean very well, but it, it is not a high level of playing, it's agitating. It's agitating to them especially. It's distracting. It's agitating to the patients. So uh, fortunately, we live in a world now with a great deal of musical talent and a great many people who play very, very well. And uh, I'll add that Dr. McMillan and I are now at the point where we hope within this year to start giving workshops, to start training people to become medical musicians, which involves people. Uh, the starting point is we're looking for professional players, soloists. Uh, I do believe it's a solo job, not an ensemble job, because there's not much space in there, and you have to be able to turn on a dime in the middle of a piece if you need to. Um, And you have to have a lot of empathy. You can have a brilliant virtuoso who hates people. That person doesn't work out too well in there. You have to be able to be a team player. 
who are part of a team and you have to understand where you are in the hierarchy. And then there's medical training, which McMillan will do. I can do some of that at this point, but McMillan will be the medical director for doing all this stuff. And there's a bunch, a whole bunch of things that's very, very important that you have to know in terms of uh, medical things. Otherwise, uh, you um, can uh, be in a dangerous situation. Well, I kind of want to shift uh, maybe a slightly different direction. Yeah. And that is, um, I was very curious, um, as I finished up reading your book, about how this experience maybe has changed your perspective and even how you perform for non-medical situations. So what have you learned about performing through working in the hospitals? Oh, you know, that's a very good question. I have to tell you, I was uh, delighted to see over time that it just playing in the, in the SICU improved all of my playing by a, lot, a, a good amount. Okay. Now, I don't want to go into this thing about what happened, especially in the first few years, but I'll just say that being a musician in there uh, actually healed me. I needed uh, the, the hint is what happens after you uh, have two minutes of cardiac arrest and you've been in brain ischemia for 17 minutes. Uh, it's not a real wonderful thing for your brain, but um, it playing there healed me. But what I saw from the very beginning and part of why it healed me and why it improved my concert playing is the degree of concentration you have to have is much more than anything I ever saw that I need to have in my life. And I've played in Carnegie Hall and Lincoln Center and the Royal Albert Hall in London, where you have to have a lot of concentration. So here is an example of why that happens. First of all, it's a room of life and death. So the overview, the title of the chapter in the book, Chapter 12, which is the overview of being a medical musician in an ICU, is called Just Don't Kill the Patient. And um, you'll see right in the beginning of the chapter where I got the line from. It's not from me. It's from one of the doctors. But you are very aware of that in the beginning. And for certain people, people who don't have the nerves for that should not do this kind of work. because And that holds true for the doctors and nurses, by the way, of people who do critical care. And I've met especially some nurses who did it for a while, and they said their nerves weren't up to it. They went into uh, uh, other uh, kind of nursing situations. So there's this incredible intense concentration and awareness that to a certain degree, uh, a person's life is at stake here that you are connecting to in that moment and that you have to be extremely, extremely careful. Now, what you're also doing when you're playing at a bedside it's easy to describe, it's not so easy to do, is you are watching the patient very carefully, principally their face, their hands, and their feet, because you can see a lot from movement there or expression, so on and so forth. And at the same time, there is a computer monitor over the bed that has the vital signs, which are the heart rate, the blood pressure, the oxygenation level, and the respiration rate. Some some of these um, monitors have more than that, but those are the, the basic important ones. And you have to know what the normal ranges are. And then one more thing that you're doing is you have to be listening to everything that's going on around you uh, because there could be a code blue. And they want me there at, at the side of the code blue. So that, that's when a patient is wheeled in and they're not responsive and they're usually in cardiac arrest, as, as I was. This is a very serious situation. You could have uh, two doctors walk over to the bedside on a consult 
And you have to hear them and you have to be very aware of them and lower your playing so that they don't have to strain to hear each other. You have to be aware of the entire room. Now, take all the things that I just said, and at the same time, you have to play the best you've ever played. You have to play as well as any concert you've ever played. Now, if you imagine doing that three days a week for 90 minutes or more, uh, and you've been doing it for seven years, obviously, this is really going to be an incredible, incredible training and uh, you're going to have a real upgrade from that. So by the end of six months of doing this, I had some friends listening to me who would say, I've never heard you play so well, and I knew it was actually coming from that. So it's a great, you know, you're giving to others, you're helping others, and you're getting tremendous amount. I always, I always say I get much more than I give. Well, this has been just wonderful today. Thank you so much for, for taking the time and sharing your experiences with us. Well, thank you, Richard. I'm so uh, grateful that you had me on the show. You've been listening to the New Books and Music podcast. Today I've been talking with Andrew Shulman, the author of Waking the Spirit, A Musician's Journey, Healing Body, Mind, and Soul. This is your host, Richard Scherr. Thank you for listening.